Um, so if you have your Bibles, open your Bibles to Colossians, being Colossians chapter 1. Um, and the title of this message is, is Peace, you know, during our Advent season. And if I could sum this sermon up in a sentence, I would say this, that in his preeminence, the Lord Jesus Christ has brought peace by the blood of his cross. In his preeminence, the Lord Jesus Christ has brought peace by the blood of his cross. And now what I mean by that is that Jesus is sufficient in all things. I I mean that he's supreme over all things. And that's the entire thrust of the book of Colossians, actually. And, and, And one old dead guy said about the book of Colossians that if we don't understand the context and who Paul was battling against, then we won't understand um, the, the, the book whatsoever. So we have to understand that Paul is kind of battling against, well, he, not kind of, he is battling against um, Jewish legalism, and he's battling pagan mysticism. There's this false teaching that, that's going on, the beginning of what's called Gnosticism, uh, that God is good but matters evil. They believe that Jesus was kind of a series of emanations from God, that he was like a byproduct kind of, that he was less than God. They believed that you had to have this secret higher knowledge above the scripture. They, they worshiped angels above Jesus. Um, some of them even said that Jesus was an angel. They they've took a lot of stock in things such as circumcision and obs- uh, observation of the Old Testament ceremonial law. And, and some of them even treated their bodies very, very harshly, thinking that it would um, produce holiness and that it would produce um, things of that nature, uh, rightness with God. Now you might be wondering, kind of, you know, hey, what's all this have to do with, with Advent, with peace? I thought we were celebrating Jesus in a manger, and we are, because this has everything to do with the first coming of our Lord. The fact is, and what we'll see in, in Colossians chapter 1 as we get ready to read here, is that Jesus is the image of the invisible God that he's the firstborn among creation, that he's the creator of all things, that he's the eternal sustainer, that he's the head of the church, that he's the preeminent one. He's above all things and everyone else. He is supreme. And he is the savior that was born to us, that brings us not only hope, not only joy, not only love, but also peace. The creator God, Jesus Christ, came down from his throne on high to be born in the likeness of a man in a manger in Bethlehem in order that he might bring us peace through his bloody, bloody cross. So if you found your place in Colossians in chapter 1, I invite you to please stand with me as we honor God's word, beginning in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You can be seated as we pray. Father, we love you. We're so grateful that we're here to um, honor you and to celebrate the, the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, God, we just pray that you'd be glorified today with the words that I would speak and that you would get me out of your way, that you would speak, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look at our first point there. In verse 15, we'll see that it says, he's the image of the invisible God. And so why is that important? 
And Paul in saying this is he's, remember the context, he's refuting this absurd system of teaching from the false teachers in the Colossian church. I want you to remember that, that they were teaching that Christ was only a series of, of emanations, that he was only a, a, like a byproduct from the Father. They kind of ascribed him to this shadowy image, this shadowy figure. And by saying image of the invisible God, Paul isn't teaching um, just simply in the, the, the material or the physical sense that we would think of, something very tangible. And this image of the invisible God can't be limited to just um, one period of Christ's existence. See, we have to understand that Christ always has been and he always will be the perfect image of God. See, Christ coming born of a virgin in a humble manger in Bethlehem didn't make him um, um, the image of God. He always has been and he always will be. You understand, Christ is the image of God, meaning that he's the exact likeness of God. So sort of like the image on a coin, for instance, or, or maybe a, a reflection of the mirror. It's the exact likeness of, of whatever it's, it's reflecting or the exact likeness of whoever's on that coin. In the same way, Christ is the exact likeness of God, for he is God. And in Christ... The nature and the being of God are perfectly revealed. And it's amazing that, that as believers, we're continually being transformed into his likeness. And so Paul's saying all of this, and this first point's pretty short, but Paul's saying all of this uh, is saying that, that Christ is the image of the... Uh, oh, Paul, Paul's saying all this, that Christ is the image of the invisible God. What he's doing is he's... he's right off the bat, taking the gun out of the hands of the false teachers. He's disarming them right away. He leaves no room for their crazy speculations that Christ was only a shadowy byproduct from God. In fact, he, he's saying that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the exact likeness, the, the perfect manifestation, the perfect, perfect uh, representation. And Paul continues to disarm them as he goes through this beautiful chunk of Scripture in these five verses. Like, this is a powerhouse of, of Christology right here, the powerhouse of the study of, of Christ in these five verses. And he just continues to disarm them by, by saying not only is he the image of the invisible God, but our second point, that he's the firstborn of all creation. And this firstborn of all creation is a, a stumbling point for many people today. And just as uh, the, the false teachers thought about it then, so many people today, some of them even claiming to be Christians, stumble on this point, And they teach that Christ is a created being. Some, some um, sects of cults uh, kind of attribute Jesus to even being uh, an angel or less than God, um, a created creature, the brother of Satan. There's just a list of these crazy um, ideas that they have for Christ. And people like that will, they'll deliberately misinterpret texts such as this one right here to validate their false teaching. And what we have to understand is that Paul's not teaching that, that Christ is a created being. And we have to understand the context of, of what Paul's doing here and who he's talking about to, to clearly understand when he, what he's meaning when he says he's the firstborn of all creation. And so the people that would like to try to say that this text teach, teaches that Christ um, is a created being, it absolutely makes zero sense at all for Paul to be saying that because we've got to remember that Paul's refuting people who say that Christ is a created being. So it doesn't make any sense. So the text can't mean that. He'd simply be agreeing with these heretics that he was combating if that's what he was saying. So remember, context is everything. We have to understand the who, what, when, where, why, and how of Scripture before we jump to a conclusion. 
And so, yes, Jesus is the, the firstborn in the sense of being before all things in creation. But we have to remember that he is without beginning and without end. That he was never created. He, he always has been and he always will be. He is the creator of all things. So being the firstborn, it can relate to, to yes, time, such as, you know, uh, Rev is my firstborn son. We'll have another son here. Could be a few weeks. It could be a, a, a couple months, you know. Uh, uh, his name is Judson. And so hopefully, you know, would Rev is, came first, right? So he's my firstborn son and Judson would be my secondborn son. And so in this sense, yes, firstborn can relate to time, but it also, in, in this first century context, has so much to do with rank, not necessarily time. And that's the main idea here. It has to do with rank. And, and Paul in saying that Christ is the firstborn of all creation is speaking primarily uh, to the preeminence in his rank or his superiority in rank, the fact that he's superior or that he's higher than everything else. And so when speaking of firstborn in the first century, we have to understand that the firstborn uh, was that who was the ranking son, the, the one who would be given the full inheritance of the father. And, and sometimes the firstborn was not the son who was born first, if, if you're following with me. It was whom the title was given to in order to display his pre, uh, preeminence over the other sons. And I want you to kind of think about a pretty practical example is Ishmael and Isaac, right, from Abraham. Ishmael was the firstborn son, but he did not receive the inheritance of, of, of his father Abraham, did he? Sure, God kind of blessed him in a way in giving him, um, you know, sending him off and giving him some land. But however, you look at Isaac, he received the inheritance of his father. Even though he was born second, he has the title of the firstborn son. And another kind of example that we can look at is uh, throughout the Old Testament, we'll talk about, uh, the Old Testament writers will talk about Israel being the firstborn among nations. Well, we know that there was many other nations before Israel was established. But what that is signifying to and pointing to is their preeminence over all nations. They're being blessed and highly favored above everybody else and all these other nations, the heir of God's promises. And so again, the meaning of this text isn't just referring to time, but it's referring to rank. And what Paul is highlighting here is that, that Jesus is far more superior than all people in all places, than all things. He was before creation and he's over creation, the firstborn of all creation, the one in whom is due the right to be the inheritor of it all, the ranking son, the firstborn, the supreme one. He's the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation and he is the creator of all things. Now look with me at verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Our third point, he is the creator of all things. If we needed any more proof that, that Jesus isn't a created being, here it is as we follow the flow of the text. See, Jesus cannot be the creator of all things and at the same time be created. It just doesn't make sense. So Paul slams the door on the false teachers here with that simple statement. 
by saying, for by him all things were created. And verses like this, they really get me pumped up. I really get excited when I get to read about Jesus being the creator of all things and also about being our savior. When I get to learn uh, in depth and richness about Jesus, I really love reading rich texts like this. And when I get to see this, when it says, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, I get really excited uh, a major focus of this verse, though, is, is on the spiritual realm. Not necessarily just all things that were made, the trees and the bushes and the fish and the beasts. Not, not just that, but a huge focus of it is actually on the spiritual realm. And we see that when he's saying, you know, um, invisible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, these kinds of things. And I want you to remember the reason why I said that is, is because the false teachers promoted the worship of angels. They, uh, they promoted the worship of angels above Jesus. And some even saying, ascribing Jesus to be an angel. And Paul rejects this attack on, on Jesus and he makes it known that all angels, whether they're fallen or whether they're holy, are just created beings. And, and furthermore, that the one who created them is the image of the invisible God, the preeminent firstborn, the creator of all things, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and in fact, Christ is the very origin, the creator of creation. And by him, all things were created. And we even look at John chapter 1 and verse 3 when it says, all things were made through him and without him was nothing uh, that was made, that was made. Was not anything made that was made. My, obviously, my translation isn't below the Mason-Dixon line or something because I can't talk the way it says. <laughs> he is the source of it all, and he's above it all. He's the creator. And Paul continues by making another remarkable statement here. He says, all things were created through him and for him. See, Jesus is God. He needed nothing. He was in perfect fellowship with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. However, for his glory and for his good pleasure, because he chose to, he created all things. And here's the thing, guys. All things exist for what reason? To glorify him, amen? That's the chief end of man is to glorify God. Everything serves the will of Jesus or contributes to his glory. And as another old dead guy once said, uh, alluded to the visible, invisible thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all created things by him will either gather around his throne in worship or be under him as his footstool. They're all going to give him glory, amen? He's the image of the invisible God the firstborn among creation, the creator of all things. Our fourth point here is he is the eternal sustainer. I want you to, to listen with me here to the power of those words in, in verse 17. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Before the universe and before any other created thing had its being, Christ was there. Therefore, he is eternal without beginning and without end. And I know I say that over and over and over again, but it's a point that we need to get. And so why is it important that Paul would mention this about Christ? Because remember, I want you, the context that these false teachers uh, were teaching that, that Jesus was, remember, an, an emanation, kind of a, a byproduct, basically kind of like a holograph, a shadowy picture from God. They denied not only his humanity, but his eternality, the fact that he has um, no beginning and no end. 
and the fact that he is the creator God. They denied these things about Jesus. And if you deny Jesus there, then you deny Jesus altogether. And we have to understand that Jesus Christ always has been and that he always will be. And, and Paul continues further here in the second part of verse 17 that, that not only is Jesus the creator, but he is the sustainer. And I know that, that this is another generation that, that we're going to be talking about, but, and it's actually in the 1700s or so, but, but thinkers from the Enlightenment period, you guys ever heard of the Enlightenment, Enlightenment period? We're thinking like Thomas Jefferson, folks like that, our founding fathers, who actually a lot of them were pretty wacko in their theology, such as Thomas Jefferson, for instance. He has his own Bible called the Thomas Jefferson Bible. Don't read it. Well, if you read it, read it with your good glasses on because he pretty much took the 17th, you know, whatever, 1700s version of Word and copy and paste it and made his own gospel accounts and took out miracles and took out the resurrections and other things, things that he couldn't wrap his mind around. Because in the Enlightenment period, you were big thinkers. If you couldn't reason it, if it wasn't rational, then it wasn't true as the way he believed. And so these Enlightenment thinkers, they really dropped the ball. So men like Thomas Jefferson, they, they looked at God like a great watchmaker. And what's a watchmaker do, Ben? He, he makes the watch, he puts the gear in there, right? He slaps the battery in there, pulls that little plastic piece off there, gives it to you, and that joker just starts ticking, right? You don't have to, you don't have to, the watch ain't going to stop until that battery dies, right? It's the same thing. And so they were thinking of God kind of like the great watchmaker, these Enlightenment period people, that God would create this watch and uh, basically the universe and all that's in it, and he would put it into motion. He'd start them gears, he'd get it going, and then he would step back and leave it to the laws of nature, that he wasn't sustaining anything. In fact, he was just the creator. And so again, church, I don't want you to let anyone fool you. Jesus Christ, the creator God, didn't just put the earth in motion and leave it to the laws of nature to be governed. He literally sustains everything from the smallest molecule to the biggest particle in the sky. Jesus Christ sustains absolutely everything. And Paul uses some very emphatic and definite words, and I want you to listen to them. In him all, A-L-L, things hold together. Without Jesus's mighty hand holding all things things together the earth would tilt and totter the galaxies would collide together we would utterly destroy one another in our complete sinfulness within an hour all things would crumble and cease to exist if jesus the creator god the sustainer didn't hold it all together so no matter how brilliant the scientist is or how brilliant the great thinker is of the age they will never succeed at attempting to preserve the world apart from the mighty hand of christ The galaxies are in motion exactly the way that Christ wants them to be. The earth is inhabitable because Christ made it that way and he keeps it that way. The fish in the seas continue to thrive because Christ sustains them. We breathe in and we breathe out because Christ sustains us. I need to keep going. I'm sure you guys are probably pretty tired of me talking, right? But what better sustainer is there than the eternal creator? We move on day in and day out. Because Jesus, who created the universe and everything in it, sustains us according to the perfect will of the Father. It's not by accident. He didn't set something in motion and step back and go take a nap anywhere. He is actively sustaining it as we speak. Man, it's beautiful. So he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn among creation, the creator of all things, the eternal sustainer. And our our fifth point here is he is the head of, of the church look with me at the first part of verse 18 i'm just going to repeat what i said and he is the head of the body the church so remember in the context once again we find paul battling these false teachers 
who are claiming, you know, um, in teaching the worship of angels and Old Testament ceremonial obedience uh, above what the apostles were teaching. And, and they, they ascribed to this higher knowledge that you would get and these great mystic things that would happen, the visitation from angels, whatever it was. And so for Paul to write that Christ is the head of the body, the church, we know that this isn't a new thing. He's actually dealing with this in a couple of other places as well. And we're familiar with statements such as Christ is the head of the body who is the church, right? We went through Ephesians like for a couple weeks and we talked about that as we looked at the order that, that God has designed for the family, that God has designed for the church. So we know, uh, we know that Christ is the head of the body. And what does that mean? What's it mean when I say that Christ is the head of the body? See, Paul often uses an analogy between the church and the human body. This isn't something that, that he's um, shy of doing. He does it in multiple places. And I want you to think, the human body has what? It has toes, it has fingers, has hands, legs, shoulders, arms. Uh, it has all these different parts, stomachs, belly buttons, eyeballs, noses. It has all these different parts. But what does it have to, to, to give it life and a will and direction? has a head, right? Without a head, the human body absolutely cannot function. So the universal church, and when I say the universal church, I mean every believer on earth right now, and even every believer that's dead uh, and, and, and in heaven with, with Christ is the body of Christ. So you have the invisible and the invisible church. And what that means is that each one of us, blood-bought, saved by grace through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, are members of the body. We are members of the universal church. We are the fingers, we're the arms, we're the legs, the kneecaps, the shoulders, the elbows, the eyeballs, the ears, all of that. And so yes, as, as, and Christ gives us life. He is our head. He, and as, as the head, Christ gives us life and and that's how we become the church. That's how we become part of the body. But that's not the, the primary scope of this statement, actually. The significance of the statement deals with the theme of this chunk of Scripture, which I hope you guys know by now is the supremacy of, of Christ over all things, the fact that he's greater than all things. And, and that means that, that Christ is the chief operator. He's the will. He's the mind, the director, the leader, the authority of the church. He's the head, right? He is the governing um, aspect of the church. Without him, we are lifeless, directionless, with no will, with, with, with nothing, and we as members of the body of the church are in, com uh, uh, sorry, in complete submission to our head who is, who is Christ, who is sovereign above all things, including the church. So as we kind of spoke about before, the, the mention of the church as the body suggests three major things. First, the church is a living organism whose members are joined vitally together as he's placed them there. The church is a living organism whose members are joined vitally together as he's placed them there. Second, the church is the means in which Christ will, will fulfill his purpose and mission. And, and, and then third, we have an, an intimate connection and union with Jesus, who is our head. So we've kind of looked at this at a universal aspect, and now I kind of want to just dial this into a local aspect, like inside the doors of this church even. Since Christ is the sovereign, the authority, the leader, the head of the body, which is the church, in his providence, he has placed each believer in this local church at Imago Day to fulfill his purpose and his mission. So we might be a small church, right? We don't have a whole lot of people here, but we're lacking nothing in fulfilling the mission of advancing the kingdom of God until Christ returns. We're lacking nothing in order to fulfill the mission of telling the world that unto us a Savior is born, amen? 
See, Jesus has sovereignly and perfectly and providentially placed each one of us believers in a Mago Day to operate efficiently and effectively as he's designed us to. All the way from me to Ben to, to even Anthony here, who, who was saved just, what, two years ago, wasn't it? A year ago or two years ago? Saved not too long ago. Uh, all the way from Ben to me to, to Anthony. He's placed each one of us here in this place perfectly by his awesome will to operate effectively and efficiently as he's designed us to. And I want to remind us that the only, and we're kind of chasing a rabbit, but it's okay. The only thing that keeps the body of the local church from operating as it should is if the, remem- if the members refuse to move in unity as the head directs them. And I want you to know this paralysis, this um, refusal of movement from the members of the body this paralysis can be due to, to sin, can be due to fear, can be due to ignorance, it can be due to silence, not speaking up to, to say, hey, I feel called to do this, can you help me get there, pastor? Um, these different things, and, and I'm not going to spoil it right now because in February, we're actually going to pick up in Colossians uh, around the, the first week of, of February, and we're going to preach through the book of Colossians, and so I'll get more into this because it's not necessarily about this, um, so we'll talk more about that later on. But what I want us to remember today is what Paul wanted the, the Colossians to remember in the first century, that Christ is the head of the church, that we submit to him, that we don't worship angels. That's why we see so often in the Bible, for instance, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, when an angel visits a person and the person falls down on their face, what's the angel say? Like, whoa, get up, don't worship me, right? Don't, you don't got to worship me. You need to worship God. Think about what he told Mary, right? Mary's all scared and afraid. And he's like, hey, don't be scared. Gabriel says, don't be scared, Mary. You found favor with God. More or less, like, point it back to him. You don't have to be afraid. So we don't seek a higher knowledge above the scriptures. We know that 2 Timothy in chapter 3 says that all scripture, every word of this canon of scripture is breathed out by God. Literally from his innermost being, it is the word of God. So we don't have any higher knowledge than that. And we don't treat our bodies harshly to attribute some kind of holiness or, or some kind of measures of grace to merit something. No, because by his stripes, by the, the stripes of Christ, we are healed. We don't have to celebrate these Old Testament ceremonies anymore or keep any dietary restrictions or any of those things because Christ fulfilled them all for us. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn among creation. He's the creator of all things. He is the eternal sustainer. He is the head of the church. And our sixth point, he is the preeminent one. Verse 18, the second part of it, fix your eyes there. When he says, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And that's the main thrust of these five verses here, the preeminence of Christ. And what I mean by that is, and what Paul means by that is that he surpasses all things, all others, anything in creation. He's above it all. He is preeminent, the most important. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So when we look at that first section there, he is the beginning. It's not just pointing back to Christ as the beginning of all things, but in the context of this verse, Paul is saying that he is the, the beginning of the church. Christ is the origin, 
the beginning, the source of life of the church. And then again, he is the firstborn from the dead. And we spoke about the firstborn earlier in the, in the sermon more in terms of rank. And now we look at the idea of firstborn more in the um, terms of precedence in time, that it came first. As Christ was the first one to, uh, to raise from the dead into true resurrected life, right? He, he is preeminent in, in being the firstborn from the dead because he was the first one to raise from the dead into resurrected life. And you might say, well, like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I remember reading the Gospels and I find a place where Christ raised this, uh, this girl from the dead, Jairus' daughter, and that a place where he rose Lazarus from the dead. So you mean to say that these two people came first, though they rose from the dead. How can Christ be the firstborn from the dead? Well, here's the thing. Those two people, Lazarus and Jairus' daughter, guess what happened to them? They died again, right? They, were, they weren't the first ones to die and then resurrect to eternal life. Jesus Christ was the firstborn from among the dead because he died and resurrected to eternal life. Jesus Christ alone is the firstborn to raise from the dead into true resurrected life, never to die again. That's what stands him apart from anybody else that was ever raised from the dead in the Bible. Because Christ is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, in him alone is found the eternal life that all who trust and believe in him might inherit. It's, it's our highest virtue as Christians. Our highest virtue, that our dead bodies will be raised again, that with sin will be no more. I don't have to deal with this stinking fleshly tent and, and that we'll be given a new body, an eternal body, made in the perfect likeness of Christ, one that lives forever, praising the Lamb and the Father for all of eternity. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, absolutely everything, he might be preeminent that in everything, absolutely everything, he might be supreme, that he might be the sovereign above everything else. From one, uh, another old dead guy said that, that from the dead, Christ has passed to his throne where he reigns as the living Lord. All authority, all authority on earth and, and heaven has been given to him and he reigns above all things and over everything. From verse 15 to where we are now, we can see that he is preeminent as he's the image of the invisible God. He surpasses all others as he is the firstborn of all creation. He is supreme as he's the creator of all things. He is sovereign as he's the eternal sustainer. He's the head of the church because he is the preeminent one. He alone surpasses all others in rank, in time, in glory, and in love as he willingly laid his life down on the cross, taking our due penalty for sin. As he resurrected from the dead after three days, his preeminence became deeper and wider than just being the creator and sustaining God. In his resurrection, he entered upon a more significant level of supremacy, displaying his power over sin, over death, and over the grave, triumphing over the work of the enemy. Do you understand? Oh, death, where is your sting? Triumphed over sin, death, and the grave. He did what no other has ever done and what no other could ever do apart from him. He rose from the grave into a resurrected life. And in his resurrection, he is preeminent in everything. He is supreme. He is the image of the invisible God, <clears throat> the firstborn among creation. He's the creator of all things. He's the eternal sustainer. He is the head of the church. He is the preeminent one. And my favorite part, he's the savior that brings us peace. I just want to read verses 19 through 20. 
might be my favorite verses in the Bible. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Don't you see? Unless the perfect image of the invisible God didn't come, unless the firstborn among creation didn't come, unless the creator of all things didn't come, unless the eternal sustainer did not come, unless the head of the church did not come, unless the preeminent one did not come, unless Jesus Christ, in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, did not come, born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit in a humble manger in Bethlehem, there would be no peace between a sinful man and a holy, just, righteous God. Amen. It's the whole reason for the season of Advent. When we celebrate the birth of Christ, we're celebrating the fact that that the God of this universe, Jesus Christ, stepped down from his throne on heaven to be born in a manger, taking on the likeness of man so that he could reconcile to himself all things and all people who would believe in him. Man, that's what separates Christianity from all other religions. And I know you guys have heard this before, but... But other religions are centered on um, attempting to merit or uh, basically all other religions are getting to God, right? Like how you can do these certain things to get to God. We're the only religion. Christianity is the only one where God came to us, amen? Man, not only did God come to us, but he related to us by taking on, our, by taking on flesh, by being tempted in all the same areas that we're tempted in. And he did not sin. Anthony, can you go all day long today without sinning? You better say the right answer. He just, he said no. <laughs> you can't, you can't make it, I can't make it, I can't trust my best five minutes. I can't go, I can't go all day long without sinning. I'm, I, I am a sinful, um, depraved being. I'm saved by grace now. But, but Jesus Christ went through... What was it, 33 and a half years of, of living without sin, being perfect, something that we could never do. I can't do five minutes. He did it for over 30 years. He came to us. He related to us. He remained sinless. But the innocent, perfect God of the universe stretched out his arms and his legs on that old rugged cross that was cut from a tree that he himself grew the eternal and all-sustaining God was nailed to that old rugged cross and raised high for the whole world to see. The firstborn among creation, the head of the church, the sovereign one, died upon that old rugged cross at the hands of sinner. And then the old rugged cross soaked with the blood of the image of the invisible God. The old rugged cross marred with the blood of the firstborn among creation. The old rugged cross wearing the flesh of the creator of all things. The old rugged cross bearing the flesh of the eternal sustainer. And the old rugged cross dripping dripping with the blood of the head of the church the old rugged cross glistening with the lifeblood of the preeminent one on the old rugged cross our great high priest and our king jesus christ from the lineage of david the lion of judah shed his blood to atone for sin and make peace between sinful man and a holy god so praise god for the old rugged bloody cross amen jesus christ is the savior that brings peace 
Jesus Christ is the offspring of Eve that bruises the serpent's head in Genesis 3.15. Jesus Christ is the seed of Abraham whom all nations would be blessed. Jesus Christ is the one who kept the law perfectly, the one who is and will reign on David's throne forever. Jesus Christ is the Savior that brings peace through the new covenant in his body and in his blood. The new covenant in which God says that he'll remember our sins no more. The peace that we seek isn't necessarily world peace with no wars where everyone gets along, right? I think of the cartoons of, and, and things in Vietnam when the protesters were there, the hippies, right? And they would go through and put flowers in the ends of the M16s and all that, right? I, I think of that, like that's the peace that a lot of people think of, just kind of walking through and putting these little daisies in each one of these M16s, world peace, no more fighting, right? Of course we want that peace, But the peace that we seek and that we celebrate this season is the peace that we have with God by the blood of the cross, guys. The peace to reconcile lost sinners to a holy God. That's the peace that it's all about. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn among creation. You'll get tired of me saying this probably, but he's the creator of all things, the eternal sustainer. He's the head of the church. He's the preeminent one. He is the savior that brings peace. And I gotta ask this question. Where is it that you stand this very day with the creator of the universe that stepped down from heaven to give us peace with the Father? Where do you stand with him today? Because Jesus is God. He did what no one else could do, and he made a way for sinful man and a holy God to be in right relationship with each other. So I have to ask again do you have peace with God this morning? Have you truly been born again? Are you playing a role? Have you trusted in the fact that Jesus Christ came, born of a virgin, that he lived a sinless, perfect life, that he died at the hands of sinners on that old rugged cross, that he rose again? And do you believe that he's coming back? That he's coming back to establish peace once and for all. But in order to, to establish that world peace once and for all, this perfect peace where there's no more fighting, no more sin, no more uh, demonic powers, you have to remember that Jesus Christ is coming back on a white horse and his robe will be dipped in blood and there will be a sword coming from his mouth and there will be a great white throne judgment and everyone whose names is not written in the Lamb's book of life will be cast into the lake of fire, a devil's hell. And just because you're a good person don't mean that you're going to heaven. And I by good I do those little finger quotes. But church, don't just assume that the moral, kind, sweet people that you work with or the moral, kind, sweet people that you live with or the moral, kind, sweet people in your family, the moral, kind, um, um, good people that you're going to go eat Christmas dinner with. Don't just assume that they're going to heaven. See, apart from saving faith in Jesus Christ, the sweet, moral, kind people that we know are actually at war with God and enemies to Him. They have no peace with God. This, this season of Advent today that we're celebrating being peace is something that they do not know. They must come to intimately know Jesus Christ as displayed here in these five verses in, first, in Colossians chapter 1. That He is God before all things, the creator and sustainer of all things. They must come to know that they exist for His glory. They must come to know that their sin has separated them from a holy God and that they are actually at war with Him. They must come to know the beauty of the Christmas story. 
that the eternal creator God of all things, the sustainer, is also the humble baby born in a manger in Bethlehem who we call Jesus. Jesus in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus, the reconciliation of all things to himself. The Lord Jesus Christ who brought peace by the blood of his cross. So Robin, you can come up and as I get ready to close. The peace that we need, again, is, is, is not world peace among men. The peace that we need is not for necessarily the wars to stop. The peace that we need is not for the anxiety in our hearts to cease. The peace that we need is the peace that Christ has made by the blood of his cross. That's the first peace that we need. And by that peace, all these other uh, will come to fruition. So we all have homework to do here today, guys. We got to go shout this out from the mountaintops. We all have work to do. We can be, we have two more weeks of Advent. Great opportunity to share the full gospel of Jesus Christ on these next two weeks. A great opportunity to invite your neighbors, your coworkers, your family, your friends into this church to hear the gospel. It's a great opportunity, actually more than that, to take the gospel to them yourselves, not to just hear it from me. We all have homework to do. We have to shout it from the mountaintops. This season is to celebrate the coming of our Savior. And so what better way to celebrate Him than by telling others of the peace that they can have with God, the peace that they can have in their hearts through the blood of the cross. I want you guys to remember as we get ready to leave here, He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn among creation. He's the creator of all things. He's the eternal sustainer. He's the head of the church. He's the preeminent one. He's the Savior that brings peace. So Father, I'm grateful this morning that you, um, your word has gone out and I just pray, God, that you were glorified. I pray that they would hang on, each and every one of us would hang on to your word and allow it to shape and mold us. And God, I pray that right now, even at this point in time, you would place on somebody's heart here uh, maybe a burden to, to be saved, to come and know the peace that they're missing out on with God. So God, I even pray that you'd place on somebody's heart here this morning a burden to go and tell their coworkers or their neighbors, their family or their friends that unto us a Savior is born and his name is Jesus, the creator of the universe, the eternal God who came to give us peace by the blood of his cross. I thank you, Lord. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.